It's Wednesday, March 23rd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Pro and Motley Fool Options, the one and only Jeff Fisher. Thanks for being here. Good day, Chris. You're busy. You're dressed up. Dressed up a little bit. You're shooting a video later today. Is that why you're... Or are you just like, you know what? That's just how I roll. This is just what I fall asleep in and what I wake up in now. Uh, we are going to dip into the full mailbag because uh, our listeners have a bunch of questions that are uh, right up your alley. But I, I think before we get to the mailbag, we need to say a few words about Andy Grove uh, because uh, earlier this week the news broke that Andy Grove, uh, the former CEO at Intel, died um, at the age of uh, 79. And I, we were talking right before we started taping, and I, I said to you, when I first saw this news, the first thing that went through my head was that whatever tribute is going to be paid to Andy Grove, it is not going to be big enough for the legacy that he left behind in the world of business and and technology. I mean, this uh, this is this guy was a giant. In the, the tributes that I have read, he's credited as he should be with uh, making the current computing age largely possible. The current Intel CEO, Brian uh, Kresnich, said, Andy made the impossible happen time and again. And that's really true, especially when I sat there this morning and thought about it. He, What he did was certainly impossible to my mind. Uh, so it's as good as magic, as far as I'm concerned, as is most technology. And yeah, Chris, we, we still get the Washington Post delivered at home. So do I. Well, so we're of a certain generation. <laughs> <laughs> that, that still likes that exercise in the morning, going out, getting the paper, just the tactile, That's flipping right. through the pages. With your coffee. And so, you may have saw, seen, as I did, that Andy Grove just had a tiny mention at the very bottom of the front page of the Post in their little sort of index. And then you had to go to the Metro section, page B6, to read his obituary. So, yeah, he online, luckily, he's getting all the accolades that he should. And uh, Andy, you, you know, he was an immigrant to the country. Yes. In 1956, he was born in 1936 in uh where which country? In Hungary. He was a Hungary, that's right. And of course, right during the middle of the Nazi uprising and it, uh, subsequently his family shuffled his mother really shuffled him around back and forth between friends and family to keep him hidden, keep him safe. And finally in 56 with Russia rolling in, he he his family told him to get out of town, and he went to to New York. Of course, it's another great story, another great example of how 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 much America can benefit from immigrants to the country coming uh, in and, and sharing their their smarts with us. Absolutely, I uh, I I'll tweet this out on the Market Foolery feed, but um, I just want to read a little bit of an article. It's it's an excerpt from a book. Uh, by Jeffrey Garten, entitled From Silk to Silicon, The Story of Globalization Through Ten Extraordinary Lives. And one of the people that Garten profiles is Andy Grove. And and let me just read from the excerpt. Um, Because, again, I think certainly um, you need to be someone who is, I think, very interested in business to, to even be familiar with Andy Grove. I think you also need to be of a certain age. I think that it's perfectly understandable for anyone under the age of 40 to be interested in investing and and to have little to no idea who Andy Grove is. So, let me just read this from Garton's uh, text. Andy Grove was not a path-breaking scientist. He did not author anything so important as the law associated with Gordon Moore. 
He was never a household name like Bill Gates. Unlike Steve Jobs, he was not a design genius, nor did he have the same intuition for consumer sentiment. But no person had as much to do with making possible the third industrial revolution as this Hungarian immigrant who arrived in the United States in 1956. And it just goes on to talk about, you know, the first industrial revolution, um, you know, sort of the mechanization of the textile industry, um, the second with mass production in the 20th century, and the third industrial revolution, technology and Silicon Valley. And, and it is very much Andy Grove and the, the work that he did at Indel that lays the foundation for everything we're doing, for the the phones that we carry with us to podcast technology, everything. So true. And he and it was a rocky road to get there, of course, not only his youth and growing up, but then the they started a company on the East Coast and that became too bureaucratic. So he moved to San Francisco and that's where he start he was the third employee at Intel, which integrated electronics was the full company name, shortened to Intel. And he led that company really through very turbulent times where initially Intel just made memory. And then as you may recall, Chris, I, I, I recall as well, memory became such a commodity that Intel knew they had to move away to survive. And they moved into integrated circuits and processors. And uh, along the way, he wrote some books. He was a great manager as well as a great you know, scientist and technologist. And in 96, his most popular book came out in 1996, right when we, we were at The Fool then. Yes. And investing into the great storm of the internet, you know, revolution, his book was only the paranoid survive. Of course, of course, to us, not all listeners will have heard of it. And one of the key points of that book uh, was where Andy wrote about inflection points. And this is a point where s- changes have gathered to such uh, a thunderhead in an industry or at a company that the rules of the business have changed. And if a company misses that inflection point or doesn't respond quickly enough to it, it can be doomed either in the short term or in the very long term too. And it's fascinating to me that in the 20 years since that book, we've seen so many inflection points, whether it's online retail, taking out retailers left and right, or now I think the energy industry with all these new uh, so-called the cleaner energies uh, becoming affordable and slowly eating away fossil fuel strength. And you name it, there are inflection points happening everywhere. And as investors, we can look to those to find opportunity and danger. One of the stories I uh, think about from time to time about Grove was when his own company was facing one of those inflection points that you referred to. And he and his right-hand man were trying to figure out, what do we do? And they had gathered the lieutenants at the company. And it was essentially... We've been making a lot of money doing this one thing, but this this other thing seems like it might be the future. And and around the table, there were people arguing very vociferously on both sides of the argument. And so Grove sort of huddled with his lieutenant and and um, came up with what I think is a, a great construct for anyone who is involved in business or just anytime you're facing a, a decision on the professional level. And he turned to his lieutenant and said, if the board of directors fired you and me and hired two new people to fill our spots, what would they do? Hmm. And his lieutenant was like, oh, well, they'd they'd go with the upstart new thing. He's like, right, they would. I think you're right, and we should fire ourselves and hire (laughs) ourselves back 
and walk back through the door, and that's what we should do. And I thought that was just such a brilliant way of removing emotion from what was clearly a very difficult question at the time. I love that. That's sort of like hitting the reset button, too. And because it's so easy to get comfortable or feel secure where you are, and and your natural inclination is to hope, well, where I am right now is a, a position of strength. Things will be fine. Let's just keep going. When in, in many cases, you really have to reinvent yourself yet again. And that's extremely difficult. It's hard to do. To One final thought, for me anyway, right now on, on Andy, Andy Grove is, at the age of four, he had scarlet fever, and it, it permanently damaged his hearing. So to make up for it, he learned to read lips and sat in the front of class, and so on and so forth. It's just another human factor that to come from such a difficult difficult upbringing uh, in a tumultuous time in the world and to, to accomplish what he did is, uh, yeah, phenomenal. Market Foolery at Fool.com is our email address from Ben Stubbins in the U.K., uh, something's been eating away inside my head for a while now, and it suddenly crystallized the other day when hearing one of your podcasts. I accept that, in general, leveraged ETFs are very risky and bad news because of a need to time the market. However, if we accept that, in the long run, stocks go up, why would you not buy a 3x S&P 500 ETF? For decades, we've seen the average market return is healthily positive, so buying this would make it even more so or have I missed something crucial? Uh, great question. Before we, before you answer it, just explain for folks what is a three X S and P five hundred ETF. That vehicle seeks to earn triple the S and P five hundred's return on any given day, just a given day, and then it rebalances to get three X exposure. It uses debt and margin, of course. It's using leverage, and whatever the S and P gains or loses that day, it hopes it, it should be set up to gain or lose three times as much. And then it resets itself to do it again the next day. So, more risk, more reward. But to his question, if, if you're thinking, well, I'm just going to ride this out for a long time, why wouldn't you do it? Or has he missed something crucial? Well, what he's certainly done right is focused on a vehicle, the S&P 500, that has gone up historically over time pretty consistently even so you're you're taking a lot of extra risk buying a 3x leveraged ETF or any leveraged ETF and the main reason why is called beta slippage <laughs> is that what it's called <laughs> it's one of the words for it anyway or it's called a, a depending on if it's if if you're investing in in commodities you would call it contango perhaps but but it's where you're rebalancing daily if the value of the ETF declines and then you have to rebalance your your exposure and your margin and all that, you're now rebalancing at a lower point. So when it gains the next day, you'll gain less than you lost the previous day. And that's why a leveraged instrument, when it works against you, will compound against you rapidly. Uh, for instance, I was looking at the history of UPRO. Uh, Ticker is UPRO. It's the ProShares Ultra Pro S&P 500, which does exactly this: 3x exposure to the S&P 500. And if you were long this in 1987, when the S&P fell 21%, <laughs> it fell nearly 70% that right. day, and then it really couldn't recover for a long, long time. Uh, that said, 
just in case anyone missed that, the phrase that pays that Jeff just said was that day. It didn't, <laughs> it didn't drop 70% over the year. No, no, no. It dropped 70% that day. A single day. Now, the flip side of that is if you happen to buy it, this ETF in 2009 when it came out, it's done very well because the S&P has gone up those five years. In fact, as of right now, the S&P is up about 60% the past five years, and UPRO is up 248%. So, to the listener's point, what a great investment. It can do well. It can do well when the S&P consistently does well. But when the S&P has a rough couple of years, or even six months, it will really you may lose most or possibly even all of your previous gains and then some. And anytime you're dealing with leverage, that just increases uh, the need for a really strong stomach. And yeah, and especially so, some of the research I've read has just argued well, if you're going to leverage the SP, just leverage it yourself one to one or whatever, two to whatever you want, but use true leverage rather than use an ETF that rebalances every day. Because effectively, what that does is when you lose on a day, you're waving the white flag, oh, we lost, let's rebalance at this lower starting point now. And that how, that's how you compound your, your losses with this sort of ETF. The, the vehicles are meant to be used on a daily basis for traders, basically. Long term, they'll work out only if everything goes in your favor the vast majority of the time. Question from uh, Jordan DeJong in Tokyo. I heard on the show about dollar cost averaging over a period of time, and it immediately made me think of the S&P 500 put writing strategy. It's a strategy where you sell at the money puts with the intention of being uh, of being assigned if the S&P 500 goes down, and paying you a premium of the option if it goes up. It reduces your entry costs and allows you to participate in upside because you are bound to be assigned at some point. I would love to hear your thoughts. I see nothing wrong with this strategy. The the strategy of selling put options to buy the S&P 500 index at a lower price will pay you while you wait. The biggest risk is the market rises without you and you don't get to buy the index or it falls much further than you expected and and you're buying at a at a price well above that. But still studies have shown that writing puts on the S&P 500 at the money or near the money will ultimately outperform just buying the S&P 500 uh, from a returns basis. From a tax perspective, it may not. Uh, depends if you do this in a, a tax-advantaged account or not. And while you're doing this, keep in mind, again, you're keeping cash on the side to buy the S&P. So, if it keeps going up without you, you, you may miss that. But the S&P is obviously a large index. Usually, it doesn't soar, except for right after it crashed, like 2008. Uh, usually, it moves and fits and starts. So. A lot of people have had success writing puts on the S&P to buy into it lower. Especially if you're largely invested, this is a way to, to get further invested or to dollar cost average into the S&P. Last question uh, from Chris Robertson in Chicago, your old stomping ground. Mm-hmm. Um, a lengthy question, but a good one. Uh, you, you guys have talked about writing a put option as a method of entering a, pos- a long position in a stock you like. That way, you can earn the option premium, as well as open a long position if the strike price is hit. I agree that this is a very wise method in entering a position, but my question is this. 
Because writing options typically requires at least one contract, which, as we've talked about, is means 100 shares of the underlying stock, mm-hmm. how can this method be practical for stocks with high prices, since I'm required to have enough cash in my account to purchase the 100 shares upon the strike price being hit? For example, if I want to own Alphabet, and then in order to write a put option for 100 shares, I would need roughly $70,000 in my account ready to purchase the 100 shares at around $700 a share in order to write the put. Is there a way around this, or a way to make this strategy work for high stock prices? Most of the companies I'm interested in owning right now have stock prices over $100, thus requiring at least $10,000 to even think about writing put options on them. Great that he is thinking all the way through this. Mm-hmm. And let me point out first, Chris. Do you realize what's happening here? We're talking about options, and and it just kind of happened naturally. Yes. Usually you razz me a little bit, and then you reluctantly <laughs> go you know into what? options. You know so. what? When the when the listeners start you know piling up the questions yeah. on options, that's what I'm like. Maybe I should get Fisher in the studio <laughs> so we can go through some of this. It is a great question, and there's no ready solution anymore. There was one in 2013. Many options started to roll out. The Chicago Board Options Exchange, speaking of Chicago, issued many options which represented only 10 shares of a stock rather than 100 shares. And those came out on Apple when it was $700 a share. Uh, Alphabet was one. I think Priceline, Amazon, those all had many options on them. So again, you're you, you could just trade or invest in options that represent 10 shares instead of 100. But when Apple split its stock down, I think it was a 7 to 1 split, back down to $100 per share, that kind of marked an inflection point where people lost their interest in many options, and they are, for the most part, now gone. So, unfortunately, the best thing you can do is, when you're interested in so-called high-priced stocks, and I encourage you to be, they, they whether it's Berkshire or Alphabet or Google or Alphabet or Apple or you name it, Priceline, they tend to go up for a reason. And uh, just buy those shares directly, buy however many you can reasonably afford, and then look for put writing opportunities on other companies that are lower priced, whether it's Nike or Under Armour or Skyworks, something that's sub $100 per share. The one other thing you could do is write a put option and then buy. A lower strike put option, setting up a bull put spread, but still that that you're still playing with probably more exposure than you want to have in that case on a really high price stock. Uh, one housekeeping note before we wrap up: the market is closed on Friday. We are off tomorrow, but we will be back on Monday. So uh, a great opportunity if you haven't already to check out our other podcasts. Here at the Motley Fool, go to podcast.fool.com. Check out Industry Focus. Check out the bonus episode of Market Foolery that we did last Friday, where you can win an investing library. All that and more at podcast.fool.com. Before I let you go, uh, can we talk about Motley Fool Options for a minute? Because this is one of the services you run. It's only open a couple of times, only open to new members a couple of times a year. We're in one of those periods now, just for folks who are interested. Give me 20, 30 seconds on sort of your approach to options investing. Sure, Chris. And that may be why we're getting so many questions. There's, there's been a lot of interest in this reopen. It only lasts for a few days. And then we'll help new members get started with options. We use options to generate income, to buy stocks at lower prices, to lower our risk compared to just owning a stock outright, to leverage our upside, things like 
when Facebook was a less certain investment, when it was around $20 per share, we bought calls on it in Motley Fool Pro and later bought calls on it in Motley Fool Options as a way to invest less money, risk less money, and still have the upside. Those did really well. So options are generally, Chris, a way to put less capital at risk, leverage your possible returns, and the way we use the most, generate income with less risk than owning a stock outright at today's price. So they're a very good tool to complement your long-term stock portfolio. Options, the way you we use them, lets you keep your stocks for the long term, for long-term appreciation, and at the same time generate extra returns whether stocks are flat or down even or keep going up by using options alongside your stocks. So they're they're a great tool. I've been using them since 2000 now. So check out the free we have a lot of free content right now online. Yep, you can go to optionsradio.fool.com. Uh, there's a crash course in options investing that Jeff has put together. It's free to check out the crash course. Um, so just go to optionsradio.fool.com. Motley Fool Options is a service, not free. And as I've said before, not for everyone, but it might be for you. So, you know, go kick the tires uh, on the crash course. Yep. That crash um, course has three real recommendations in it as well, trade ideas in it. So check those out, read those, and see if that sort of strategy appeals to you and your portfolio. That's optionsradio.fool.com. Thanks for being here, man. Thank you, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Fool. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.